I do, yeah. Okay, uh, with us on the phone is uh, Dorothy Fall, uh, who's the author of a new book on Bernard Fall. Uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Dan. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you uh, for doing this uh, because uh, I've always admired uh, your husband's uh, writings. Uh, and I was very pleased uh, to get the book and then noticed that you also had artwork, have artwork in there. Yes, well, I am an artist, uh, primarily so, and so it was unusual for me to write this book. But it was a story I had to tell, and, uh, and I always intended to write it. It just took me a long time. Well, why did it take that long? Um, well, I had started shortly after my husband's death. Uh, he died in 1967. And um, I said uh, his story is, is one that I have to write. It's one of destiny and it's one of courage. He was, he was very brave uh, in many, many ways. And, uh, but he insisted on searching for the truth and at whatever cost. And uh, it finally cost him his life. But he was a very controversial figure. He had a life of destiny, and that was part of the reason I, I wrote it. Is, and, it. is it hard to live with this person who has a life well, of destiny? Well, it was, uh, <laughs> you know, I didn't think about that. It was a challenge, and I was young. I had young children. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, it took me a long time because I decided to write it, and I took a six-month leave of absence from my job at the U.S. Information Agency. I went to France, and I interviewed people because he had been in the French resistance. He was still French, and um, knew his buddies there and and met his uh, army pal, too, one of his best friends, uh, his former teacher when he was an, because he was an immigrant in France. He had come from Austria. And... um, and, but his sister gave me, you know, wonderful stories about their early life. I mean, I, I would not have had that whole area to talk about. And, uh, but I came back. This was in 1972. And I started to write. But it was very, very painful. And my children were very young. And soon my six months were up. And uh, I put everything away. I put everything away for another day. And... Um, that day arrived in 1995, so we're talking about 23 years. Wow. And uh, I decided in 1995 when Robert McNamara <clears throat> excuse me, came out with his book in retrospect yeah. that I had to do it. Uh, Robert McNamara said, um, well, we were making policy for a country we knew nothing about, and we had no experts to fill us in, to help us in our ignorance. <laughs> so, I mean, here, here were, there were a lot of experts. There were experts inside and outside the government, uh, and my husband was right here in Washington. Right. And, right. Uh, but uh, Robert McNamara wasn't interested in learning the truth. He was, uh, a pro- was he a professor um, right, right during the U.S. involvement? Or? Yes. Uh, The name of my book is Bernard Fall, Memories of a Soldier Scholar. And so he was, as I wrote it, I I determined that title because he he loved the military and he insisted on traveling with the soldiers while he gathered his information. But he was a scholar and he was a professor. He was a professor at Howard University. Right, right. And so he would leave, uh, he would go to Vietnam in the summers 
or he would have uh, grants for a whole year. One year he had a Rockefeller Foundation grant in 1961-62 and took the academic year off, and I took leave from the U.S. Information Agency. And we went and lived in Cambodia for the year, which was the most fascinating year of my life, I would say. It was before all, you know, the chaos broke through. And um, then another time, he was on, the last time he was on sabbatical. And he was on sabbatical for the year 1966-67. And uh, that was his last trip to Vietnam. And I went to Hong Kong right. uh, with my children and, because he was going to visit us in Hong Kong. Did um, He wrote for uh, magazines and uh, newspapers. Yes, he was... Um, he was not assigned to any particular publication, but his work appeared, for instance, in the New York Times magazine. I think he wrote 10 articles that appeared there. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of pieces for the New Republic. Uh, Gilbert Harrison, who was the editor and publisher, uh, would just accept any article Bernard wrote. Uh, was Harrison it? was very anti-war and... Uh, right. And then he wrote for, you know, some mainstream publications like the Saturday Evening Post and uh, Esquire magazine. And, and then he had a piece in, uh, the, in the Saturday Evening Post in 1962 after his interview with Ho Chi Minh. Right, right. Did, um, was he, would he call himself a freelance writer or how would he describe himself? Well, he didn't freelance in those days. No, I, he, <laughs> <laughs> no he, call, he, he called himself he didn't call himself anything. We all called him an expert on Vietnam. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so, uh, and since he was a scholar, he was always writing. I mean, he wrote six books on Vietnam. I, I afterwards put out a seventh, uh, last yeah. Reflections on a War. And, um, and he wrote hundreds of articles. I mean, that not only for the publications I mentioned, but for many scholarly publications. And then also for uh, the Military Review, which is, and its equivalent in Germany and, and maybe in France, I don't recall that, uh, which was read by the officers of the um, General and Military Command School at Fort Leavenworth, Kentucky. Would, would it be correct to say he respected the ground soldiers, um, but was, was he skeptical of the, the military brass? No. No, he... I don't... I, I, I didn't feel that was the case. He had great respect for the military. I mean, there were individuals, uh-huh, uh-huh. of course, uh, whose uh, commanding uh, procedures he didn't agree with. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He had to be very careful. He was not an American citizen, ah, I see. and he felt he had to be careful of how he wrote. Uh, people said he was a great critic, but he was very careful about how he um, how he worded yeah, phrased, his, yeah. his uh, material to right. sh- so that it didn't appear as if he was t- attacking the United States, but he simply stated the situation as he found it. And uh, through his actual research, and um, this was looked on, upon as criticism because it was counter to what the government was saying. He thought the U.S. could uh, could 
um, could win in battles militarily because he was more powerful, but he he thought it would lose ultimately uh, politically. Politically. He said there had to be a political uh, solution. There had to be social reform. And, uh, you know, we're saying the same thing in Iraq today. <laughs> you know, we have to resolve it uh, politically. Obviously. So, um, and he also, you know, from very early on, he advocated uh, some kind of truce settlements. I mean, we're talking about 1962. And uh, when he interviewed Ho Chi Minh, he, he um, you know, Ho told him it would be a very long, long battle. And um, if you're interested, if you're interested, I could read you some of what Ho Chi Minh said to Bernard and, and sure. what Bernard said. And sure. uh, Ho said, um, it took us eight years of bitter fighting to defeat you French in Indochina. The Americans are much stronger than the French, though they know us less well. It may perhaps take 10 years to do it, but our heroic compatriots in the South will defeat them in the end. And uh, Bernard, this was an article in the Saturday Evening Post. He said um, in 1962, I believe we could press more effectively for some kind of true settlement on terms that would definitely not be a surrender. We could demand the immediate end of guerrilla fighting in the South and a far more effective international inspection system to police the truce. We may not achieve such a settlement, but I feel very strongly that we have no reason to fear it. And we must clearly realize that the alternative means the bloodshed and misery of a long and probably inconclusive guerrilla war, a war which Ho Chi Minh is well prepared to fight. Well, as you remember, 13 years later, um, we did pull out of Vietnam. On, so, the, on almost the same terms as uh, it could have happened like in the six, late 60s. Correct. But, uh, you, know, the, you know, Kissinger uh, got uh, Nixon to bomb uh, Hanoi and all this right. stuff. And, uh, and, gave, gave in, and kind of gave in to the, the South and to delay it. Right. And so um, how did, how did uh, your husband get the interview with Ho Chi Minh, given that he, uh, he was actually quite close to people in the South also? Yes. Well, he was very objective. Mm. And um, when we arrived in Cambodia, in, in, well, he arrived earlier than I, but I would say in December of 1961, he sent uh, a request to the government in the North asking if he could come to North Vietnam. And he also requested an interview of uh, Phan Van Dong and Ho Chi Minh. And um, it took six, at least six months uh-huh. because he finally received permission in, I think, in late June of 1962 and uh, made his way to Hanoi uh, in, for the first two weeks of July of that year. And... Uh, actually got there through, you know, the International Truce Commission had planes flying in, mm. uh, from Cambodia to Laos and Vietnam and so forth. That was the only way you could get there. Um, and he was the first Western journalist to interview Ho Chi Minh. Wow. Um, so actually he was, he was interviewing Pham Van Dong. And um, as he was talking to Pham Van Dong, who was the prime minister... Ho Chi Minh came in, hmm. 
And um, Ho said, well, I've been reading. He had a copy of Le Viet Minh, which Bernard had written. It was part of his doctoral dissertation, ah. uh, The Viet Minh, and it was translated in, into French. Um, and Ho had read it. And this was, uh, he did his dissertation uh, where? He did his dissertation at Syracuse, for Syracuse oh, yeah. University. Right. He was teaching at the time at Cornell, but uh, both his master's and um, doctorate degree are from Syracuse University. So th- was that on the, on the French uh, involvement? Right. Yeah. Right. He, um, he went there, for, this was his first trip in 1953. Um, he came to the United States in 1951. I met him the second semester of his being at Syracuse. Ah. And um, Were you undergrads? I was an undergrad. I was a senior. Oh. <laughs> and I had a, uh, I was co-chair of a group called the Human Relations Group. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And um, we were looking for some foreign speakers. And the professor recommended a couple of graduate students, one of whom was a French student. And... Um, wow. he wanted to meet us, and my co-chair said, well, he doesn't sound French, and he doesn't <laughs> even have a French name. <laughs> and so I, uh, we met him the evening before his talk, uh, and I was absolutely amazed that here was this very attractive six-footer. I imagined someone who had a who looked French, you know, what is the stereotype of a Frenchman, a beret and, you know, mustache and (laughs) certainly smoking a cigarette out of the corner of his mouth. And I had made these posters, which I hung around campus with an actual cigarette (laughs) hanging out of the poster. And I cut up some nylon stockings to simulate smoke. I was a graphic design major. (laughs) And so... um, I hung them around campus. So we met this very, this fellow who was going to talk, whose name was Bernard Fall, and he was there wearing, he had a crew cut, you know, very short hair. He was wearing an American Army bomber jacket and blue jeans and loafers, and he didn't look the least bit like my stereotype. And his first question was, well, who's that idiot who hung those (laughs) stupid posters all over campus? And I had to admit that I was the one, and 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 he laughed. I remember, and uh, but he, I was absolutely in awe of him. He talked about his early life. Uh, I was this sheltered girl from Rochester, New York. I'd uh. never traveled anywhere. In those days, uh, students didn't travel to Europe the way they did here uh-huh. Uh-huh. today. Yeah, and. Um, he uh, he was ju- he told us about his life. He had been in the French resistance during the war. His parents had been killed. His mother uh, had been shipped off to Auschwitz, and she never returned. His father was later found by the Gestapo and, and murdered, and his sister was hidden in a convent during the war, and, and he joined the French underground, and he was 16. Wow. And... For my book, I had all kinds of documents. I had little uh, notebooks that he had written, uh, little agendas, little diaries in which he wrote where he was and what his reactions were. So I was able to trace him in the underground um, 
in the resistance. And then he made his way over to the French Alps, and he was in the Maquis. Uh, the Maquis was absorbed by the French army as the Allies invaded France and moved north. And uh, I had all that information. I had interviewed, as I mentioned, his army buddy in 72. So um, I, uh, I knew I could pretty well trace his activities during that time. And then he told us he had been at the Nuremberg trials, and he was a research analyst at the Krupp trials. Krupp was the... Hmm. Uh, Military industrialist who made the arms for armaments. Hitler. <laughs> the armaments guy. Yeah, yeah, the armaments. And so um, I was just overwhelmed. Wow, that's amazing. I had amazing. never met anyone like this. Was and um, I was just thrilled when he phoned me the next day and after his talk and invited me to the movies. And, <laughs> and so began our romance. So it was like love at first sight. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> So um, I, was, I was telling you how he went to France, and I mean how he went to Vietnam the first time. So um, after he finished his coursework in two semesters for his master's degree, which included his thesis on illegal rearmament of the Weimar Republic, mm. uh, so it looked like he would be a European specialist. Well, he came to Washington and took a course um, at SAIS, the School of Advanced International Studies at, of, of Johns Hopkins. Uh, and he took a course called Nationalism and Colonialism in Southeast Asia. Oh, wow. And... Who, who taught that? Um, what is... Uh, I'd, I'd have to double-check. It's, it's on the tip of my tongue. Amory Vandenbush. Ah who uh, was of Dutch origin, and um, he was a visiting professor from the University of Kentucky. Hmm. Was visiting for the summer, he would come periodically. During the Second World War, he had been a French translator, and hmm. so uh, we, I, it seemed that he took a particular liking to this young man who wrote a book, who wrote a paper, a 100-page paper, even though there was little material available yeah. on Vietnam. And so uh, Professor Vandenbosch said to Bernard, you know, Bernard, uh, there is there's a dearth of material on Vietnam. You could make a real contribution if you selected Vietnam as, or Indochina, as the subject of your doctoral dissertation. And Bernard said to himself, well, my countrymen are fighting there. The French were fighting the Indochina War. They had gone back to um, Vietnam after the Second World War, even though Ho Chi Minh had declared independence. Right. And so they were fighting the communists. Uh, Bernard said, my countrymen are fighting there. And... Uh, I would have to go in order to find out what the real story is. And he thought about it, and he said, yes, I'll go there. And so uh, we were engaged at the time. I wasn't happy that he left. Actually, <laughs> I went to San Francisco after he left for Vietnam. But mm. he wrote to me daily. He wrote uh, letters 
full of detailed information of what he found and what he was doing, what the French operations were. The the censor called him in and told him to stick to love letters and not write, <laughs> give all those military secrets away in, in his letters to me. He wrote about the people he met, uh, about the, re- the effect of his research, and about the soldiers there, the army. And from those letters evolved his book, Street Without Joy. Yeah, yeah. Which is very, very famous. And it's still read today. Did he, uh, did he learn Vietnamese? He learned Vietnamese before his last trip. He took a cor- he took a course in Vietnamese, but he really, you know, he knew a few words. He knew a little. He knew a little bit to get by, but um, but generally, he he really learned it in 1966. So, um, but he had no trouble communicating. Is he? Uh, a lot of people there knew French at the time. Yes. Yes, because they had grown up under the French system. Yes. And as you know, the the French taught them, uh, taught the same thing to their colonies as they taught to as they taught to their own people. So people would, Bernard would always say, well, someone in Africa would say, well, our ancestors were the Gauls. <laughs> you know, the same would be true of, of Asia. So they had wonderful uh, French education. And um, many of these people, the educated people, would travel to France, and of course they were they were fluent. And um, when I met a man um, who eventually introduced me to General Jap, mm-hmm. he said, uh, "I read all your husband's books in French." Mm. So, and and my conversation with him was totally in French, uh, as it was with General Jap whom I met in the year 1997. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was that was when I took this this book up again. And you you learned French uh, in college or, or? I well I started in high school. Oh wow. And then and Bernard because he spoke and that was one thing I didn't I didn't mention was that when I met him he spoke English, uh, you know, fluent English. Yeah with barely an accent, barely <laughs> perceptible accent, uh-huh. uh, with all of the slang, all of the argo. And he said, well, I learned it from the GIs in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, so that was, uh, that was amazing. And so he wrote in all three languages. Right. And, and, um, and because he had been born in... Um, Austria. In Austria, yes, and his family—they they were Jews and had to flee after um, after Hitler annexed uh, Austria. I was going to read something uh, about um, what General Powell said. General Colin Powell said about uh, Street Without Joy. Oh wow! Oh. He he wrote in his autobiography, My American Journey. Yeah, yeah. I recently reread Bernard Fall's book on Vietnam, Street Without Joy. Fall makes painfully clear that we had almost no understanding of what we had gotten ourselves into. I cannot help thinking that if President Kennedy or President Johnson had spent a quiet weekend at Camp David reading that perceptive book, they would have returned to the White House Monday morning 
and immediately started to figure out a way to extricate us from the quicksand of Vietnam. But, but actually, a lot of American journalists read uh, Bernard Shaw's books. Right. And, right. Uh, and how, how was it that his uh, research materials ended up at the Kennedy Library? Well, Bernard taught at Howard University, and in his will, and as he said to me, he left his research collection to Howard. And one of my stipulations was that they, um, that it be open to everybody, and, and it was. It was made accessible, and it was held in a private place. But um, they were closing the library, oh. and I guess they were building a new one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if that ever came to, I think it came to pass. And the materials were not going to be accessible for a long time. Oh. And I was not happy about it. Um, Robert Kennedy had asked me shortly after Bernard's death if I would uh, donate his materials to the Kennedy Library. And I told him I couldn't do that because Howard, because Howard uh, would be the recipient, according to Bernard's wishes. But in 1986, I believe it was, um, when the university was, was closing his collection, and I did go and visit the academic dean who said, well, um, the university now was concentrating on um, engineering and business, and there was less of an interest in um, Southeast Asia. Oh. And so, uh, or international relations. So I uh, did write to Edward Kennedy and told him of his brother's request and, and uh, what did he think? Would he, I think the Kennedy Library uh, would be a better place for Bernard's collection. And so uh, Senator Kennedy wrote back and said, well, they would have to, uh, they didn't want to be seen as a raiding party and they would see what kind of arrangements they could make. And so they eventually exchanged Bernard's collection um, with a collection of African-American documents uh, that was at the Kennedy Library that Howard really wanted. Oh. And so that's how it it came to pass. Do you know when when Robert Kennedy read uh, Bernard's books? Well, he read them actually during the war. Hmm. Uh, you know, Bernard was very suspect uh, since he, since his, what he was writing was so critical. I mean, from the very beginning, from the 50s, he was writing about, uh, he was very critical of the French um, and their operations, the same sort of thing, that these people only wanted independence. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Not, and in, in our case, too, he did not believe in the domino theory. Uh, so that when Robert Kennedy was Attorney General, um, he, I don't know, it, it, at least I read in um, the final days of Woodward and Bernstein that he had Bernard on a list of people to have their telephones tapped. Tap, tap. <laughs> uh, however, uh, during, at a later time, I, w- I think it was 1965, he had read Bernard's book, specifically The Two Vietnams, and he was very impressed right. and wanted to talk to him further. Unfortunately, Bernard was traveling at the time and, and could not. But um, 
I would say in the in the early '60s, he had read his he had read um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some of Bernard's books. Yeah, it's too bad it couldn't have influenced um, his brother. <laughs> well, by then his brother was gone. Right, right, right. That yeah. was too late. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's true. Yeah. That's true. And we don't know what uh, President Kennedy would have done. You know, he uh, he told Charles de Gaulle, uh, "We're not." I'm sorry, I'm getting tongue-tied. As an artist, I'm used to just painting and not to talking. (laughs) Um, You're doing fine. (laughs) But, um, no, uh, when Kennedy saw de Gaulle, as I said, he said, well, we're not colonials like you French. Uh, We want to spread democracy to Vietnam. Of course, that's what we have said about Iraq, <laughs> Iraq too. Um, but we don't know. You know, people speculate: Would Kennedy have continued? Would he have right. uh, increased the number of troops? Uh, at the time of of his death, these were advisors. We had sent in advisors. We didn't. Yeah, yeah. Troops. Although he's known as a cold warrior, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's hard to know. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, we're talking with uh, Dorothy Fall, who's the author of a book on her husband, uh, Bernard Fall, Memoirs of uh, Memories, uh, Memories of a Soldier Scholar. Uh, it's published by uh, Potomac Books, which used to be called Brassies, uh, in Wash in Washington. And uh, this is Subversity here on KUCI eighty-eight point nine FM in Irvine, and on the web at KUCI.org. Um, this is Dan Sang. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Um, maybe we could focus on that uh, wiretap and the FBI uh, files on Bernard. Uh, what did you find in those? Well, um, I'll go back to to sort of the the origin of it, if I if I may. Sure. Um, that in 1958. Uh, Bernard, when Nodin Jem was in power, uh, Bernard found that the situation was deteriorating, or actually during his 1957 trip. So that was very early. And he found that um, the village chiefs were being assassinated, and they were being replaced by communists. In other words, the village chiefs had previously been elected, and now they were appointed by Nodin Jem, and they were being killed and replaced by communists. So in other words, the communists were, were infiltrating the South. And Bernard came back after that trip, and he wrote um, a piece in the nation telling about it. And um, at that point, uh, people found him very controversial. They accused him of all kinds of things. And the FBI started to track him. It, it seems like uh, no. It's uh, it seems like he did a lot of research just from public sources, right? He saw exactly. he read he, newspapers and saw right. the murder murders being described or being reported. Exactly, within in the newspapers <laughs> that he was reading this. In fact, you know, he most of his material was from um, aside from his personal research. So much of it was from publicly available documentation. It just depends on how you interpret it. It's like uh, I.F. Stone. That's right. how he uh, got his uh, 
uh, investigative reporting going. Exactly, and the and the two were were friends. So, yeah, yeah. And neighbors, you know, oh. Izzy would come over, and Bernard would tell him about Vietnam, and they would share a lot of their ideas and and documents, and and um, and I'm quite sure that uh, Izzy, as I said, uh, was was quite influenced by Bernard and his thinking about Vietnam. Um, but uh, in nineteen, in the late, when I Fifties. No, in the late seventies. Um, oh, seventies. Yeah. I decided I would ask for Bernard's FBI file. You know, this was the time when they were le- were releasing materials, and I eventually got it after several years, and it was all <laughs> blacked, blacked out. out. It was all <laughs> I know. Rejected. Yes. <laughs> and so I was very upset. Very upset. I would say like ninety nine percent blacked out. How many pages? Uh, I think fifteen hundred. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I could not, I appealed it, and to no avail. So uh, in 19, so I, you know, I didn't forget about it. <laughs> huh. uh, you, you in 1995, it? President Clinton oh. issued a directive for further release of materials from right. the FBI. And that was, so I requested them again. Like executive and, order 12233 or something. I think it was an executive order. I'm not familiar with. Yeah, but I, mean, I just know that I yeah, sent I a letter to the FBI, and the man said, and the, re, uh, the reply was, "Well, since your first demand, or your first first request, nothing new has been added to your husband's file." Well, he had been dead for <laughs> 30 years, and I didn't think there would be anything added to his file. Um, however, you may request further release. Uh, by writing to the Justice Department, and I did. And after a year, the Justice Department sent me a letter saying that they were returning my request to the FBI. So in all, it took five years. And then the year 2000, the file came. And um, certain things were still blacked out. Uh, Sources, um, things that they thought were... You know, I, no one else should see. However, there was enough left that I could read. And um, it could seemed that it showed how they uh, tapped our telephone. They taped our phone calls. How do you know that? Uh, because I read it there. <laughs> oh, they had transcripts? They, they, did did uh, they have transcripts of uh, phone it, call conversations? It was in, it was in the... Um, in the documentation, we put a, uh, what is it called? I'd, I would have to check back on, on their terminology. E-tel, E-sa, or something. It is, I'll get to it. Tel-sa. I have to check that out. But it said we put a tap on the phone and such and such a thing was said. I mean, for instance, they they uh, they quoted Bernard and his uh, discussion of Robert McNamara, and you know what he said. And um, there were things that really amazed me about how I was going to New York and whom I was staying with, which is irrelevant to anything. <laughs> and um, but and FBI agents would attend Bernard's lectures around the country, 
and you would uh, see the um, the whole uh, transcript of it. Are you still there? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. It was I'm so looking... silent. I couldn't, no. I couldn't tell. I thought maybe I'd lost the connection. No, no. I'm looking at the chapter where you write about this, and uh, you define the different surveillance techniques. Uh, you said in 63 July memo, said we are instructing Washington field office to conduct surveys for a microphone, M-I-S-U-R. Right, uh, that's and, what it was called. And, te- and technical surveillance, T-E-S-U-R. Correct. And then also physical surveillance, F-I-S-U-R. So te- yes, technical. And, that, and that involved um, watching him. They had <laughs> a, a photo of him, and so they would watch him at the airport as he would come and go. Uh, they would watch our house. Hmm. Uh, my daughter said she remembered uh, coming home from school, and there would be this car parked out diagonally across the street from our house with a man sitting in it for <laughs> hours. <laughs> and they would observe who went into the house and who came out. And they were not trying to... They were trying to prove that he was a French agent. A spy. A spy. And, you know, here he was. If he was a spy, he was the most visible, outspoken spy. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, his aim was to educate, was to inform the country of what was happening in Vietnam and what was wrong and how we could correct it. But he was generally very objective. And, um, and for that, the FBI went after him. Uh, in one case, the Defense Intelligence Agency tried to prevent him, tried to dry up his sources. And because the military knew that what he was writing was correct, he lectured at the Military Assistance Institute to officers going to Vietnam, and they would write back, well, the only person who gave us the real story was Bernard Fall. Wow. You know, that's a pretty strong statement. And... You know, I have letters like that. He mm-hmm. he has all kinds of documents from the military who really respected him. He spoke to the uh, Army War College, the National War College, Army bases, uh, to the um, was to the Special Forces School in Fort Bragg. Wow! And so um, that was why they they wanted to prevent his. Uh, speaking to the military, and they they wrote he could have a uh, negative impact uh, if he continued to speak to them. Did, However, uh, it didn't have much effect. Did they try to deport him or have him deported? Report no, him? Did, no, they didn't report him to INS. Or did they, immigration? I'm sorry, I thought you said they tried to deport him. Yeah, or did they report him his activities to immigration? Uh, not I that know. I know of. Oh. No. I mean, today it would be very different. Right, for sure. Uh, he, might, <laughs> he might have been deported. He might end up someplace, someplace else. Yeah, rendition. <laughs> right. Well, I didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so uh, it's very scary. Yeah. I, I actually got my CIA file. I requested, and the ACLU uh, went to court for me. And, really? And the first thing they did was send it to INS. Uh, saying that I was a Hong Kong-born Chinese living in Philadelphia at the time, and if they had anything on me. And of course, they, they didn't, because I'm a U.S. citizen from my mother, who was born in Seattle. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> I mean, I have nothing to do with the INS. And so, <laughs> I 
And INS wouldn't respond for like a year or something. It took months or years before they responded. And so there was this uh, compartmentalization, I suppose, that the agencies didn't talk to each other. And, oh, well, and what did INS say? They said they had nothing on me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they spelled well, my, I, you know, and my file, my files also, my name was spelled wrong. They called me sure. da- David instead of Danny, Daniel. <gasps> well, that's a, that's a big change. That's a big, <laughs> I would say. I'm surprised I, mean, I they, got, I'm surprised I got it. <laughs> Actually, yeah, it was under another name. There were name. a lot of errors in yeah, the sure. file too. Yeah. Like he went to Columbia University. I mean, where do, I don't know where they got that information. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. They looked up some um, poli-sci association directory and listed what I, what courses I took and stuff like that. And they called people up at the school. Where I, I, I think or some other. There was one phone call they did at least. What year out, was this? Um, since in the 70s. Uh-huh. It was anti-war stuff. I was helping out with this magazine in Washington called Covert Action mm-hmm. Information Bulletin. Mm-hmm. was trying to expose CIA activities. Oh, <laughs> and wow. so, uh, oh, no I, wonder they went after you. Well, I had a Chinese. I have a Chinese name, so maybe they thought I was a spy or something. Sure. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but whatever. So it wasn't very efficient. But they they did pay me. They paid. Oh, they paid the ACLU forty six thousand dollars to uh, to okay. settle the case. They paid ACLU. Right, forty six thousand. That's did that cover the the legal fees or yeah. was that in addition to it? I didn't get anything. <laughs> it just right. gave to lawyers, which they need, and uh, they promised not to spy on me again. But how do you know? <laughs> right, right. So that's an aside. But um, so um, you, did you know they were uh, spying on him at the time? Uh. For some reason, Bernard suspected it. I mean, there would be clicks on the phone, and um, he would say, well, that's the FBI. They've got to change their tape now. And then there's one wonderful anecdote, which I think my editor cut out, and he was speaking to a French friend who had just arrived in the States, and suddenly the phone went dead. And when they... Uh, reconvene their discussion, Bernard said, oh, that was just the FBI. They had to find a French interpreter. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably true. (laughs) Which which might have been true. And, uh, but there, I was really so so angry because there were so many personal things that they, that they discussed. Hmm. And, you know, I wondered about my friends, my so-called friends who would, who would, uh, report on us. Oh, right, because right. They, you know, they, it was always, uh, there was always, uh, you know, an informant uh, yes. who's been reliable in the past. And, uh-huh, <clears throat> uh-huh. So, so you wonder who it was? Well, I, I thought <clears throat> we had uh, a military family next door, and, and the, the wife would come in very frequently. <laughs> and sort of nose around and wondered what we were doing. Oh, yeah. But I, d- I don't know. It's, it's, I really don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it gets you kind of paranoid <laughs> or suspicious, at least. <clears throat> yeah, but yeah. I really I really felt that um, because the government would not listen to him, you know, right. nobody was interested in what he was writing. Right. And he was very upset about it and so forth. And 
uh, I can remember going into my car and turning the key and thinking, well, maybe the car is going to blow up. I mean, you can see how paranoid I was. Oh, wow. And um, But that happened in Washington, actually, the, yeah. with the Chilean um, you know, people that were, yeah. Right, right. Critical of U.S. policy there. Yes, the, the fellow for the Institute of Policy Studies. Right, 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 right. That was, I think that was in the 70s, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, seventies or eighties. Yeah, and so yeah. So uh, yes, well, you know. Uh, so it's good that you waited that long to write the book since you finally got the files. <laughs> right. Well, I, you know, I lived my life, and yeah, uh, yeah. I, I didn't feel I was ready. There were too many other things happening, and uh, I was. I had I worked for USIA. I was a graphic designer, and then I was an art director for my own firm. And then I just, once my kids were out of college, I decided to, to just paint full time. Wow. And so I had a lot of exhibits going on. And, and then, so here we are, we're 23 later, 23 years later, it still took me, you know, quite a while to finish this because I was still having exhibits. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But, uh, and then I decided to go to Vietnam in 1997 to interview some of the elder statesmen. And that's when I was able to interview uh, General Zhao, wow. who was the general, who, you know, behind the first the Viet Minh and then the Viet Cong. Was he in the eighties then, or, or he was eighty-five when I saw yeah. him wow. in nineteen ninety-seven? Right. So he's still alive. He's he's yes more frail right now, and right. his wife is lovely, uh, uh, who teaches and um, and when I saw him um, his wife and son were there oh. I have to tell you a wonderful anecdote which was that I went with my two two of my daughters I have three of them and uh, two came with me very lovely young women I've seen pictures <laughs> in your book <laughs> yes and um, so they came, and, and we weren't able to... I really wanted to see Pham Van Dong, who was very old, and, and he had gone back to his home village. And so we decided to go to travel from Hanoi uh, and do the rest of our trip down to Hue and, and Saigon and then go over to Cambodia. Um, and they all went home. They had to go back to work. I also traveled with, with two fr other friends. And I went back to Hanoi alone. And so when I arrived at the gate, um, the uh, General Shep's uh, secretary and his son greeted me. And they said, well, where are your daughters? <laughs> <laughs> and then when I arrived at the house and uh, General Shep's wife greeted me, she too asked me, where are your daughters? <laughs> and so I had to explain that they could not wait and, and had to go back home. But uh, it was really a very special and you spoke, time. And you spoke French? Yes, oh, yeah. I yeah. spoke French, and I taped the interview, and uh, we talked about um, just general things. And I, I asked the general if he had read Bernard's works, and he said, uh, uh, only in excerpts, only in, you know, I guess reproduced uh -huh. of, of his work, uh, but he certainly knew him. He knew of him. Uh, he knew the details of his death, and they were all very 
sad and sorry about it. Did he meet? Uh, did no, he meet he, Bernard? No, he time? had not met Bernard. Oh. Uh, he said he was away at the time because I did ask him. Yeah. And he said, your husband was the first person to predict the defeat of the Americans. Right. And um, so he, he said we were grateful for those writers like Bernard Fall and um, Philippe de Villers, who is a French uh -huh. writer, right. who wrote objectively during the war. Was the was this was this the the residence right in the center of Hanoi? Yes, uh. it was. And they and his wife said to me, "It's very rare that we receive people at our residence. They usually receive them at at you know an official office." Right, right. But uh, she, she said that shows you how how strongly we feel. And when I. Um, when I met them, I, I shook hands with the general and I said, uh, "Je suis ravi de faire votre connaissance." Ravi in French means I'm very pleased, delighted, delighted. Enchanté. <laughs> right. And he said, "Moi, pas ravi, ému," means I'm very emotional to meet you, very moved. Oh yeah, yeah. So and, he, was he very weak then? No. 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 It was an amazing, amazing experience. You know, I had seen photos of, of him. And right. <clears throat> he's short. And he's short, actually. About him. Excuse me. He's quite short. <coughs> Bernard had written about him. Yeah. And um, so I, when I arrived, uh, I was invited to drink tea. It was only his wife and son, and we chatted a bit. And suddenly these parlor doors opened, and out came the general in full dress uniform yeah yeah red epaulettes and uh it was a it was an amazing vision for me mm -hmm. I mean, it was it was very symbolic of many things and uh something i will of course never forget was uh hanoi different from the times you've seen it before right i saw it i had i had not been there until 1997 oh yeah you yeah. know bernard had gone alone oh in 1962, I stayed in in Phnom Penh with my two children. How yeah? How was Phnom Penh then? Was it? It's totally oh, different Phnom from. Phnom Penh was a never never land. Yeah. Cambodia was a wonderful country of uh, lush, with plenty of food. The people seemed to me to be happy. Uh, I I always felt there was a dormant strain of. Of violence, but um, but it was it was a, a delightful country, you know. It was run by Prince Sihanouk, and um, he, you know, people felt he was eccentric, but he was um, he he wanted he didn't play one side against the other. He wanted he was he wanted only to save his country, and so. Uh, we were not happy that he did not choose the West, and uh, at that time, you didn't you didn't travel uh, with communists, and and in this case, we did. We went on field trips to the outer provinces with the ambassadors, and it was a big mix of people from all over the world. 
And the whole thing was a wonderful experience. We were invited to the royal palace uh, for dinner when dignitaries came because Bernard was uh, considered a journalist. Did you, uh, did you go to Angkor Wat? Yes. Oh. Yes, I went to Angkor Wat um, then in 1962, and yeah, people yeah. I went with and I were practically the only people there. <laughs> uh, I went back in 1997, and um, there were a lot of tourists. And I'm sure that today there are many, many, many more. But it was even more spectacular in 1997, since I had seen it before, and the memories had faded so. And I was using uh, Cambodian motifs in my art. Yeah, yeah. And so it was really uh, wonderful to see it. Uh, it it's an un- unbelievable sight. Did you collect, uh, like, temple rubbings? and? No, uh, no, I didn't. I didn't collect uh, temple rubbings, but I did a lot of sketches, uh, and I've uh, always done a lot of sketches, and many of those are in my book. Yes, yes. Because I open each chapter with a drawing, for the most part, from that period and from the country I describe in that chapter. So uh, what I did in Cambodia was to, you know, it's, it's a case where I had a couple servants, uh, and um, I was able to go out and paint and draw, and I found other people there I could go with. And so I had an exhibit at the end of my stay. Oh, and right. Prince, uh, Prince Siano came and bought some of my work, and it was, uh, it was just a, a very rich experience for me, one of where I was able to learn a lot about the country and... and uh, live in a very exotic environment. And, of course, it is no longer that way. It, it, For sure. It's very yeah. tragic. I, I want to ask before we end about Hong Kong. In the, when uh, you were there on um, Bernard's <laughs> last trip to Vietnam and you were staying in Hong Kong with your uh, daughters, um, what was the schooling like? Um, you, you enrolled them in a, in a school. On the, was it on the peak or was it? Yes, well, I had arrived um, in February and enrolled them in a British school, but unfortunately, Bernard was killed a week later, and so um, they they essentially only went for a couple days, and uh, it it was too bad because I decided to go back home. Sure, sure. And uh, so. They, of course, would have had a very rich British education for the time I would be there from between February and September. Yeah. Uh, we had Bernard had rented a house for us on Lugard Road, Lugard Road you know, which is yes. a road that winds around the top of the peak. Right, right. And uh, it was wonderful. We were... I had by then I had another a third little girl who was five months old, and um, we took over a house of a couple who were leaving, who were on leave to go back to Germany for their year, and so we had their car and their dog, and <laughs> <laughs> that was in and si- took over their household completely. Sixty-five. Oh. This was in nineteen uh, February of nineteen sixty-seven. Sixty-seven. Oh, I left. Yep. I, I I was still in Hong Kong. 
I left in, uh, I think, June or something. Mm. For July or something. I can't remember when I uh-huh. left uh-huh. Uh, for the U.S. So that's when. Yes. I, well, there were many journalists who were living in Hong Kong. For sure, uh-huh. yeah. I think uh, La- Ken, Ken Lawrence, I think was his name, for BBC. I remember him uh, uh-huh. hearing. Uh, Stanley like, Carner was there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I ran to Stanley in, in D.C. once. At uh-huh. uh, at some conference and oh at a ho- yeah at a at at, at a conference uh, in D.C. Uh, and so we talked a little bit yeah oh yeah I read his books on yeah on Vietnam it's a wonderful uh, resource yes definitely yeah wonderful yes well yeah we're actually up to the end of our hour and uh, I know you have to go somewhere uh, thank you very much Dorothy for well, this thank com- you very much for having me it's been a delightful a wonderful opportunity for me to talk about my book and and my life. Yeah, and the book is Bernard Faw, uh, Memories of a Soldier Scholar by Dorothy Faw from Potomac Books. Will it be out in uh, paperback? Uh, I really don't know. We're still, they're still going into a second printing of the hard, hardcover uh-huh. okay. edition. Uh, there's a link on the Subversity site to the publisher for more information on the book. Yes, I also have my own website. Oh, cool. Called uh, BernardFall.com. Oh, that's great. So it was designed by my grandson. Oh, wow. That's cool. <laughs> Who's 22. Oh, nice. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Well, uh, we'll keep in touch. Thank you for having me, Dan. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, that was uh, Dorothy Fall, um, who's the wife of uh, Bernard Fall, who's the leading uh, critic of the war and a scholar uh, who wrote about the Vietnam War uh, in the 60s and uh, was involved uh, in uh, writing before that about uh, articles also about the French involvement in Vietnam. This is Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Um, the opinions expressed on the show were not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California nor the management of KUCI. Uh, our website is kuci.org slash tilde, D-T-S-A-N-G. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity.